Hi, I'm Zainab and welcome to Project Millennial, a space for burnt out millennials looking to live life more on their terms. Here we'll be sharing stories and insights from other millennials and also going deeper into topics like personal development, life, career, money and so much more. Essentially, we're moving away from autopilot and making more intentional decisions. In this episode, we are going to be talking about seven psychological tactics of influence and persuasion that you can use every day. So I read this book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Professor Robert Cialdini. So this book was published way back in 1984 and was based off of three years of research and undercover work by Robert Cialdini. It's a New York Times bestseller, it's been translated into 30 languages, and it's an all-around popular book. So I came across this on Amazon and I was basically intrigued by the title and I thought, why not? Let's see, let's see what this is about. I wanted to find out more about these principles and see whether I could use them day to day. I'll cover seven examples of how these can be used, but before we begin, I wanted to remind you of a famous quote by the late Uncle Ben, who says, with great power comes great responsibility. So please proceed with caution. Okay, let's start. Also, I don't cover all the tactics in the book. So if you are interested in the book, I will link it below. Okay, so the first principle, we'll start off nice and easy, is basically the principle of reason. So if you need a request, the best thing to do is to provide a reason, so a because. So for example, if you wanted to jump in line in the grocery store, you might say something like, please can I jump in front of you because I only have two items, rather than can I just jump in front of you. So when we provide a reason for something, people are more likely to comply with us. And I think that's a a, quite a self-explanatory one. So I'll move on to the next one. So the second principle is about value and the idea that we see things as higher in value when they're more expensive. So if we're ever at a store and we want to buy something, but we're not particularly clued up about that particular thing. We don't know what the best brand is. We don't know what the best features are. So in that particular situation where we don't actually have enough information, what we tend to do is then gauge it by price. So the higher priced items we will see as more valuable, we'll see them as better, we'll see them as more trustworthy, just overall better. And the cheaper items, we might hold them with more scrutiny or we might think they're not as good. So that's like a shortcut way of of us. That's a short circuit way of us saying that this higher priced item is the item that has more value. So the book gives an example of a tailor store in New York City. So this tailor store is run by Sid and Harry, their two brothers. So they have this trick that they play in their store where one of them is at the back of the store, we'll say Sid is at the back, and Harry is in the front. So Harry pretends that he's hard of hearing. When a customer comes in, Harry will be the one to be at the front of the store attending to the customer. He will size up the customer, he will be the one trying on the suits, um, etc, etc. If the customer is interested in the item, he'll ask for the price. Harry will call back to the back of the store to Sid and ask him, how much is the suit? Sid from the back of the store will say, will give a price. Let's say he'll say $180. So Harry is in the front of the store and he's pretending to be hard of hearing. He will say that the suit is 80 to the customer who will have heard this whole exchange. 
So the customer in their mind has scored an, an amazing deal and rushed to buy it. So this type of automatic thinking of, I need to get this suit right now, this is a good deal. That's the kind of automatic thinking that goes inside each of us when we see a higher priced item. We automatically associate it with having a higher value. So how can you use this principle? If you're in the business of creating products or creating something, a lot of times we were led to believe that the cheaper we make it, the more attractive it can be. And that is true in some extent. But then also we can also see that actually when things are more expensive, it attracts a certain type of mindset. So someone who is wanting to have something that's very high value will be more attracted to that particular item. So that's something to bear in mind. So the third principle is the contrast principle. And it's a psychological principle that comes into play when we have two items, that we have two items in front of us that we compare. So for example, if we lift a light box before we lift a heavier box, we will perceive that heavier box to be heavier than if we didn't pick the light one before it. So the, the difference between the light box and the heavy box affects the way we see the heavy box. So how can you use this principle? So let's say you go into a store and you want to buy a suit. So you avoid Sid and Harry's store because you've heard that they can be quite dodgy and you go somewhere else. So in this store, you give you have a particular range that you're looking for and the store assistant will likely take you to the higher end of your range. And the reason they do that is because if you see something that's expensive, anything else after that will seem less expensive and therefore you're more willing to take it. So for example, if they showed you something that was mid-range and then went to the expensive item, you would perceive that expensive item to be more expensive. So the book gives another example of, let's imagine you want to get a place. So you go to the estate agents and the estate agent takes you to a few places. He takes you to three places that are run down, they're rubbish, they're dirty, they don't look nice, they're in bad neighbourhoods. So at this point you are feeling pretty rubbish, you're not feeling very hopeful that you'll find something. Right? And then the estate agent might take you to a fourth place. Now this fourth place is presentable, it's nice, it is much better than the last three places that you've seen. So now in comparison to the last three decrepit places that you've seen, this fourth place is going to seem much better than if you just started with this place in the first place. Had you had you just seen this place to begin with, you might not have been that impressed. Okay, so the next principle that I wanted to talk about is reciprocation. And it's the idea that when we receive something, we feel indebted to the other person. So there are two people in the museum. One of them is the research assistant and the other person is the one being studied. So they're doing a particular task for that day and the research assistant pops out. He steps out for a break, buys two cans of Coke and comes back and offers one to the other person. So likely the other person will accept it. And at the end of the day, the researcher assistant will then turn around to the person being studied and ask him, oh, I've got some raffle tickets. Would you like to buy some? And they found from the results that if the person had received the can of Coke, then they were more likely to buy the raffle tickets. 
not only were they likely to buy the raffle tickets, they were likely to buy more of the raffle tickets. And what's interesting with this rule or with this tactic is that even if you didn't want the can of Coke, you probably would have accepted it. So that's something to be wary of. So another principle that I wanted to talk about, which is the fifth principle, is concession. But if you liking this episode already, please feel free to leave me a rating on Apple if you're listening on Apple. Oh, and please share the episode. Thank you so much. Okay, so the fifth principle is concession. So this this particular rule is that we feel obligated to make a concession for someone who's made a concession for us. So for example, if someone has asked something of us and we feel we can't give them this particular we can't comply with their particular ask we will have to unfortunately decline and then if they come around with a smaller ask we feel more obligated to say yes to that smaller ask so let's say for example you are doing a bit of diy or you're painting your whole house and you ask a mate oh can you come over and help me paint my house and you're like not just one not just one room the whole house so they might say no depending on the friend they might say no that's that sounds a bit much and then you say okay fine fair enough would you perhaps help me get some paint they might be more willing to agree with that so i feel like this this one's more like a negotiation tactic it's kind of like big ask and then small ask so because we feel guilty having to deny someone their first ask we feel more obligated to give them their second ask and this can also be used in the in the retail space as well so for example if a store assistant gives us an option and we say no and they come back with a different option we may feel more inclined to say yes to the other option so the sixth principle is commitment and consistency this principle basically means that when we have publicly when we have publicly shown where our value lies we're more likely to stick with it in the book they give this example where the research assistant goes to the beach he leaves his stuff down in line of view of the person being studied he just leaves his stuff down and he goes away and then someone else who's also part of the study comes over takes the stuff and runs away so he's stealing he he or she like most likely he (laughs) so in that study they found that the other person the person being studied didn't really do much you know they didn't really didn't really react however in the second part of the study the research assistant did the same thing and then asked the person please can you watch my stuff the difference is that when the thief came over the person being studied was more engaged in stopping the thief i feel like this one is very applicable to us if we are ever allowed out again because if you're ever in a coffee shop or you're in starbucks or somewhere and you need to use the toilet you need to have a bathroom break it'd be very wise to have someone to watch your stuff um and not just just leave it there i mean it may be that there is a slim chance of someone running away with your stuff anyway but this study just shows that if you ask people to watch your stuff then they're more likely to watch your stuff 
Another example that the book gives, which I really, really liked, is jewellery service. So I've never been asked to go to a jewellery. I would like to at one stage. I think it'd be interesting. If you're ever asked to be part of a jewellery or you need to do jewellery service. If the situation ever arises where it is a hung jewellery, which means both sides between guilty and not guilty is pretty equal and you need to come to a decision, the best thing to do is to ask people to give their answers in private. If people give their answers in public, they're less likely to change their mind, which means you'll be stuck and you're not leaving the jewellery service. But if people give their answers in private, they'll feel more comfortable changing their minds. Whereas if they do it in public, they're more stubborn with it. So that's an interesting, an interesting way that can be used. People do not want to be seen as fickle. They do not want to be seen as unreliable. They don't want to be seen as inconsistent. Okay, so the last principle that I wanted to talk about was social proof. So social proof is the one I find most interesting because I I don't know, I find it crazy the way it works. So let's go into it. So social proof is essentially when we we are more likely to base our decisions based on what everyone around us is doing. So social proof is essentially where we feel compelled to join the crowd, where if we see a group of people doing a particular task, we will then believe that that task is the right thing to do. So for example, you're going to a venue and you see people lining up. You're going to think that that's the right line to be in. Social proof is a way for us to shortcut the process of having to ask around for where the right line is. We can sort of see an answer right there in front of us and it shortcuts that process of having to find out the answer for ourselves. So in a lot of situations, social proof is good. It helps us. We don't need to go through the process of asking all the time, of trying to find the right answer, of doing things for ourselves all the time. So another example of social proof in business terms is testimonials. So testimonials, good testimonials that is, helps you, helps your customers see that your product or your business or your service is trusted. Particularly if you have a lot of testimonials, it again allows other people who aren't sure about your service, who don't know much about you, to trust you and be more willing to get to know more about you. So that's an example of how social proof can be used in business. Social proof can become complicated in different situations. An example of a situation where it can be tricky is if there is an accident or something has happened publicly, um, if there's been an incident or an accident. So let's say you come to a scene uh, a road traffic accident or something like that so you you approach the scene and you can see that there are a lot of people there already so because of social proof and group dynamics if you approach the scene and you see that people are just watching you are less likely to be the one to go and get help you are less likely to be the one to intervene because you do not want to be seen as breaking the norm of what's going on in that situation a person might feel like why isn't anyone else going in? Is there a is there information that I'm missing? Has someone already done this? Has someone already gone for help? You're you have a lot of questions that you don't have the answers for. And because you don't have the answers for them, you are more likely to rely on the group. You are more likely to do what the rest of 
the group are doing because you feel that that is the right the right thing so social proof works when we are unsure when we do not know what to do we will tend to do what everyone else is doing so the way to sort of circumvent this is if you are ever in a position where you need help there are two things that you need to do one is to make it very clear that you need help and that someone needs to help you and two is to point someone out is to choose someone and make them responsible so when you do that when you point someone out and make them responsible they will then become responsible and act accordingly you've now told them that they need to do something now they know what to do okay so those are seven examples or seven tactics of how you can use influence and persuasion in your day-to-day life let me know what you think i mean i think these are quite interesting i think they can definitely be used and are being used all the time and now that you know them you can see when they're trying when people are trying to use them on you and be like no so let me know if you like this episode leave me some comments if you want to reach out to me you can do you can reach out to me on my blog mind the medic you can reach out to me on instagram same handle mind the medic i am basically everywhere these days so youtube facebook twitter instagram blog join my email list as well if you'd like to thank you so much for listening